Thank you, choir. What a way to set up our text today. I am Pastor Jay. It is my privilege to welcome you for our Easter resurrection celebration. And I do invite you to turn your Bibles. I hope you brought a Bible to Isaiah 53. We have Bibles out in our lobby if you do not. But we will be spending a fair amount of time in the text today. Isaiah 53. Right about in the middle of your Bible, if you have a paper Bible. This morning as we celebrate Resurrection Day, we're going to talk about literally the greatest need facing every human being. And that need is our sinfulness, our wickedness, and our need for a Savior. To address that need, we're going to turn to one of literally the most hope-filled chapters in the Bible. I could easily preach out of Isaiah 53 uh, every quarter, every six weeks. It is one of my favorite chapters. For some of you, it's brand new terrain. For others of you, it's very familiar. Either way, you can't OD on a passage like Isaiah 53. There is so much there, and there is so much to teach and encourage us. It is the perfect chapter for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, because it's filled with gospel truths. The great theologian, one of my heroes, John Calvin, preached a series on Isaiah 53, and he entitled the series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. And so I borrow that title today, giving him full credit. And the reason that he could say that is because Isaiah 53 predicts the life, the ministry, the brutal death and the resurrection of Jesus at least 700 years before he was born. And it does so with great detail and specificity. Now, if you're a little bit of a skeptic, you may say, well, okay, I know Isaiah probably wrote before. How do we know he wrote that early? How do we know that Isaiah is ancient and how we know that he predated Jesus all that much? Let me just give you two simple quick facts. I could give you a whole bunch. We could do a whole seminar on this, but here's two quick reasons. We know that the text of Isaiah is very ancient and easily predates Jesus. Number one is simply because the oldest copy of Isaiah that exists today, the great scroll of Isaiah, is housed in Jerusalem below ground. I've seen it. Becky and I have seen it. Some of you may have seen it. The book of the scroll. And it was found in the Qumran uh, area, Dead Sea, Judean Desert. It is dated unanimously by everyone, philologists, scientists, to be around 200 BC. So our oldest copy easily predates Jesus by about 200 years. And by the way, that wasn't even found until 1947. Prior to that, our, our oldest copy was about 900 AD. And so in 1947, it took that oldest copy way back to 200 BC. Second reason we know this is so old is that the historian Flavius Josephus, writing about the time of Jesus, already referred to Isaiah as the ancient prophet. So there's, there's no doubt really among anybody's mind that Isaiah wrote way before Jesus. The question that divides liberals and conservatives is how far before Jesus, but nonetheless we're dealing with a text that's very ancient, predates Jesus. Some of you, this is familiar turf, and you're going to come back to this 
and I hope be encouraged and fed. For others of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible, unfamiliar with the Old Testament, this is going to be a little bit like alien terrain. Either way, as I've been praying over this, my challenge to both groups, whether very familiar or completely unfamiliar, is that we are attentive to God's Word and what the Holy Spirit is saying through it today, because we know God speaks through His Word today. And this towering chapter, if you look at the history of revival, the history of preaching, this is a go-to chapter for gospel preachers throughout the history of the church. And so to, we, we turn to it today again because it is such a powerful... In fact, it was St. Augustine back in 5th century A.D. who said Isaiah 53 is not so much a prophecy, it's a gospel. It's a gospel. So we turn to this chapter... Isaiah is telling us three things about the coming Savior in this remarkable chapter. You have those if you have a sermon outline. Number one, he's going to tell us about the promise of a Savior. I mean, this, this is why this chapter just surges with hope. He's going to tell us about the promise of a Savior. Secondly, he's going to tell us about the suffering of that Savior and why he suffered. And then thirdly, the whole chapter ends on an incredible high. He's going to tell us about the victory of the Savior. So first, we're going to dive in. I'm going to tell you up front, the first part is going to be the heaviest. We're going to go to seminary for a few minutes because I need to lay the background historically and culturally for understanding where this chapter, you, you know, you can't just necessarily just parachute right in and understand what's going on here. So we're going to, I'm going to, I want to lay the groundwork. I'll try to do this in a very simple way and in a way that communicates clearly with kids, teenagers, and adults. But let me lay a little bit of groundwork as we do this. Isaiah started his ministry when? He started his ministry as preaching, and he was primarily a preacher, just like Jeremiah was primarily a preacher, just like Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul. Isaiah started preaching roughly about 740 B.C. That's roughly when he started preaching, 740 B.C. I'm not going to throw a lot of dates out you, but that's a good one to hang on to, 740 B.C. He was a contemporary, by the way, if you know your Old Testament, of prophets like Hosea and Micah. That kind of places him in his context. Now, let me back up for a minute. So you got Isaiah hanging there, 740 B.C. About 200 years before he came on the scene and started preaching, his nation did what a lot of nations have done throughout history. They had a civil war. This goes on all the time. England's had a civil war. We had a civil war. Sudan's had a civil war. Ireland's had a civil war. This goes on all the time in countries. Israel had a civil war about 200 years before Isaiah started his ministry. And you need to know that because it affects this book. It affects who he's writing to and how he's writing. So what happened in that civil war? Well, that nation broke in, in half. It didn't really break in half. It broke into two parts. Okay? Israel, 200 years before Isaiah, broke into two parts. Ten of the tribes, there's 12 tribes, ten of the tribes went north. Those are the northern kingdom. And to make things even a little more confusing... That kingdom continued to be called Israel. And then the southern kingdom was two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. It was called the southern kingdom. And that kingdom became known as Judah. And so sometimes as you're reading in the Old Testament books like Kings or Chronicles, you'll see two lists of kings. You'll have the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. That's why, because there's a divided nation. And you need to know that. Because Isaiah is writing primarily to who? He's writing not only, but he's writing primarily to the southern kingdom, the two tribes. 
I want you to go back for just a second to Isaiah, the very first chapter, the very first verses, where he'll tell us who he's writing to. Isaiah chapter 1, verses, I'm just going to read down through verse 4. And Isaiah will mention the northern kingdom, and he will predict their downfall. I'll talk about that in a second. But the book is primarily directed to the southern kingdom, Judah. So let us focus our attention. This is so critical that we hear the vision concerning who? Judah. That's the southern kingdom. So he tells us right up front. And Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. That Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of... This is how you know the Bible's anchored in history. You're always given these historical reference points. So Isaiah ministers during the reigns of Uzziah. These are kings. Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. They were all kings of which nation? Which part? Southern kingdom, Judah. And then listen. You think God's tough on the nations, which He's going to be. Listen how He speaks to His own people. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord... The divine name is used there. Yahweh has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation. He's talking about his beloved chosen, his elect here. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. Notice the next phrase. This is his own people, a brood of evil doers. Now, I grew up in a denomination, I grew up in a church denomination, not in Southern California, that generally did not believe in the wickedness and depravity of mankind. They believed in what you might call the gospel of be good, be nice. You, what's the gospel of be nice? A lot of churches have that. It's the gospel of, well, we're basically good people by nature, try to follow the Ten Commandments. You learn some favor with God, you go to church to get some inspirational goodies, and you go home feeling good. That's not biblical Christianity. The gospel at its core is about the radical depravity of the human heart from the moment of conception. You may say, I don't like that. Okay, I may not either. The first question when it comes to the Bible is not what you like and what you don't like. The question is, what's the text say? And the abundant testimony of Scripture is human beings are born in rebellion against God, wicked and depraved, needing help. Hence, that's why I said this sermon is going to talk about the greatest need facing every person. Our sinfulness, our alienation from God, and our desperate need to be reconciled lest we perish in the fiery judgment to come. And he is very clear. He calls them a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. It's like he can't find the language to talk about how wicked and rebellious and evil his people are. They've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. That's a common designation of God, by the way, in Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. And they've turned their backs on him. All right. I'm almost done taking you to seminary, but let me tell you a little bit more. You need to know the book of Isaiah divides into two major parts, and all scholars, liberal, conservative, pretty much agree on this, okay? There's two major sections to Isaiah. You have the first 39 chapters, forms one clear section of Isaiah, and the theme of those first 39 chapters of Isaiah is God's judgment on both Israel 
and the nations surrounding Israel. And he, he, he makes two major predictions in those first 39 chapters. One is that the northern kingdom, those top ten tribes, they're in for it. The nation of Assyria is going to take them and they're going to get wailed on in judgment. And by the way, that happened about 20 years later and they were dispersed to the nations and have never really been heard of since. Then the last two bottom tribes, Benjamin and Judah, Isaiah predicts they're going to be attacked and sacked by Babylon. That's interesting because Babylon, when Isaiah was writing, wasn't even a world power yet. And yet, the prediction is they will be sacked by Babylon, meaning God knows the future, God dictates the future, God ordains the future, God directs the future. He is a God that is in control of every single detail of human providence. He knows what's going to go. So that's chapters 1 to 39. And then chapters 40 to 66 is a very distinct section of Isaiah. And the theme of those 27 chapters is God's grace and salvation. Starting in chapter 40, the, the, the hope factor just starts surging in, in, in the book of Isaiah. And the high point of those last 27 chapters of Isaiah, that, last, that second major section, is chapter 53. An incredible prophecy, by the way, interesting, prophecies are always which direction? Forward. Most of this prophecy is written in the past tense. That's very unusual when it comes to prophecy in the Bible. Isaiah 53 predicts a Savior who will do something very unique, and that very unique thing is he's going to become a sacrificial substitute for his people's wickedness and sin and suffer in their place. That's the theme of the last 27 chapters. It is filled with gospel, it is filled with grace, it is filled with promise of coming Messiah. So, we're going to start reading it. Now, to do that, I need to tell you one quick fact about textual criticism in the history of the Hebrew text, and that is this. Modern chapter divisions, some of you know this, modern chapter divisions go back to about the 13th century in the Latin Vulgate, and then eventually in the Greek text. Now, there are some natural divisions in the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, that exist today, but they, they don't reflect what we would call our modern chapters. What we have as modern chapters really began in about the 13th century. Verses were added uh, in the Geneva Bible in 1560, a few hundred years later. So my point is they're helpful, but they're artificial. Because where I'm going to start reading, you're going to say, uh, you're not in chapter 53. <laughs> well, I'm not. Because this chapter, somebody was distracted when they were dividing the chapters here because the chapter should start at chapter 52, verse 13. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second, but I want, to, I want to draw your attention to this. This is where this particular, we call it servant song, begins. And you'll see that as I read. I'm going to read 52, verse 13, down to chapter 53, verse 3. Let us hear what God says here. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, 
they will understand. Now I'm at 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice the personal pronouns. They're in the singular. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Again, notice personal pronouns. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Now let me tell you something about these last chapters. From chapter 40 all the way to the end, I mean, this, this second major section of Isaiah, you have four Hebrew poems that appear. We call these servant songs. And there's four of them. And they highlight a coming servant. Sometimes, as you look at these four poems, they are clearly referring to the nation of Israel. Other times, they're clearly referring to an individual. Sometimes there's a little bit of mixture of both. So in, in, in Isaiah 53 is the last of these Hebrew poems refer, called Servant Songs. It's the greatest of the four. And the, the, the looming question when it comes to this in the history of interpretation, both for Jews and Christians, is Isaiah 53 referring to the nation of Israel or to an individual? And there's a decided difference of opinion. I normally don't go into lots of differences of opinion on Sunday morning, but you need to know this one because... Where you, which exit you take on this takes you completely to different destinations. Let me give you the modern Jewish position on Isaiah 53. And here's what it is. If you went to Israel today and you asked a rabbi or you asked a religious authority, they would you know, say, what do you think about Isaiah 53? Here's what you would be told. Isaiah 53 is a picture of the nation of Israel. That's who the servant is here, and they're suffering over the centuries. Who can doubt they've suffered? They've been invaded almost more than any other nation. Babylonians, Syrians, Persians, Romans, Nazis. I mean, you go on and on and on. This poor people has been battered and bruised and attacked, captivated, taken into bondage. Egyptians, it's unending. And so Isaiah 53, if you were talking to a modern rabbi, would say this is describing our people. We are in constant suffering. Okay. The problem is that the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53, number one, we're told, is innocent, which doesn't fit Israel at all. In fact, we know that from the first few verses we read up chapter one, where he calls them a brood of evildoers in a corrupt generation. So that doesn't fit. And number two, it's very clear that whoever is suffering in Isaiah 53, here's the key, is suffering for the sins of someone else, not their own. So the personal pronouns used, I can go into a whole bunch of reasons. The personal pronouns used, the history of Israel, and the fact that this is vicarious suffering for someone else, none of this fits Israel being the suffering servant. And let me tell you one more very interesting thing. Prior to the 12th century, rabbinic interpretation, meaning the rabbis, Jews, almost unanimously viewed Isaiah 53 as messianic. That was the common Jewish interpretation till about the 12th century. We won't go into what happened, but somewhere after the 12th century up till today, that is no longer the case. But the 
Earlier rabbis would have agreed. Oh, yeah. The other position, which I think is the biblical one because I cite the New Testament, is that this is not referring to Israel. The suffering servant here has nothing to do with Israel. This is a person. More important, it's Mashiach, it's Messiah, and more specifically, it's Jesus. And I have great credibility to say it because there's at least seven direct references in the New Testament to Isaiah 53. It's quoted more than any other Old Testament passage. Probably second only to it would be something like Psalm 110. But Isaiah 53 is quoted at least seven direct times in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is showing us that this applies not just to a Messiah, it applies to the Messiah, to Jesus. And so I have great authority to stand here today and say, we have no doubt Isaiah 53 is referring to Jesus, and the descriptions here are of His life, His ministry, His brutal death, and His resurrection. Let me show you one other thing about the identity of Messiah here. This is, this is really interesting. I hope you look at this. Look at verse 13 of chapter 52. This is a, this is a, this is a tidbit of who the Messiah is. My servant will act wisely. So we know it's Jesus. And then notice the phrasing. He will be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted. Now, in and of itself, you probably might breeze over that. You need to know that Isaiah <coughs> uses that combination of words, lifted up, highly exalted. He only uses that exact Hebrew combination of words two other times. Once in chapter 6, verse 1. Once in chapter 57, verse 15. And the other two times he uses it, it only applies to Yahweh. Now, it doesn't mean it automatically has to apply to Yahweh here, but the linguistic evidence, and especially because Isaiah only uses that phrase in applying it to Yahweh, it's a very specific use of Hebrew words, phrase, tells us something pretty clear that's going on here. He is applying a phrase only used of Yahweh in saying that is Messiah who's coming. So we have very good authority that the history of the Christian tradition is exactly spot on. All right, secondly this morning, <clears throat> suffering of the Savior. Verses 4 to 11 answer two questions about the Messiah. Ready? Number one is the shorter one, the second one's a little longer. How does he suffer? Well, it's very clear, violently. Chapter 53, verses 4 and 5 and verse 7. And again, it's almost like Isaiah, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can't uh, you know, pile up enough words to tell us that this was a brutal, violent death. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken or smitten, depending on your English translation, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed, very strong word in Hebrew, for our iniquities. Punishment that brought us peace was on Him. By His wounds were healed. We're talking about someone that was tortured. Drop down to verse 7. Violence continues. He was oppressed, afflicted. The verbs are unrelenting. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the what? Slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. I mean, the verbs, stricken, pierced, crushed, afflicted, slaughter. By the way, when you, uh, Christians reading verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, we easily read through the New Testament lens of crucifixion. But we know that crucifixion was probably not common to Isaiah, was not used in ancient Israel. Some of the nations around Israel used it. The Roman Empire 
700 years later was clearly using it. They did not invent crucifixion, probably invented by somebody like the Assyrians or the Persians. Rome perfected it. But as far as we know, at the time Isaiah's writing, his familiarity with crucifixion, he might have known of it, but he, it would not have been common to him and it wasn't used in ancient Israel. So that, that gives us even more interesting prophetic insight here. Now, under first century Roman law in Palestine, with, under Rome, crucifixion was used. And it has been described as perhaps the most brutal, painful death you could possibly imagine. And it was designed on purpose to communicate something. A little bit like in ancient England when you would, you know, when somebody get their head chopped off, they were, it was stuck on London Bridge. Why? Just to be gross? No. It's gross, but that's not the main reason. The main, the main reason is, this is what happens when you cross the crown. Don't mess with the king. You mess with the king, your head is going to end up on London Bridge. Pretty effective message. <laughs> and crucifixion had similar background, had similar uh, motivation. It was designed to utterly humiliate somebody and kill them. If you've seen the uh, newer... It's not really newer, but in the last few years, the, uh, the series The Chosen has come out. We were watching an episode recently, I think it was in season two, but it was showing through the whole episode a number of people in the background being crucified, not just Jesus and the two thieves. The point of it, which I thought was well done, is showing you how common crucifixion was in the first century. For Pilate to order somebody to be crucified was a daily thing. Yeah, he was just going through his daily chores, and yeah, okay, these people crucified, and, and they did it along the road. It wasn't on a hill far away. It was done along the roadside. The person generally was stripped naked, sometimes beaten and whipped, tied and or nailed alive, and they were put right along the roadside, the main thoroughfare where people were going by. Now, you may say that is absolutely horrifying. It probably is. Nonetheless, point was clear, just like in ancient England, what's the point? Don't cross Rome. Cross Rome, Rome will literally cross you. <laughs> and you will be hung, and you will be put on display, and you will lay there and sit there until you rot and are eaten by the birds. That's crucifixion. That's what Jesus went through. And Isaiah is predicting that, even though he's probably not real familiar with crucifixion, but the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Now, that brings us to a more important point. Why does Messiah suffer like, why is this brutal violent death described in such detail. And here we have, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, teens, this is critical. Why Messiah suffers is this, and this is the important thing. He's going to be killed a violent death, and he's going to suffer for a very specific reason, and that is to atone for the sins of his people. That is why he's going to suffer, to atone for the sins of his people. And here we come to the core of the gospel. I have no idea how familiar with the gospel you are. I have no idea what your spiritual background is. But here is the good news of the gospel. It's the story of a God who loved the world so much, he offered up his only begotten son to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would believe in him. And the language of sin and judgment and the need of a Savior saturates Isaiah 53. Let me show you. Let's go to the text. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
pierced for our transgressions. That is why he died. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, Isaiah is showing us something that the Bible tells us throughout. There is something radically wrong with human nature. You might say, I didn't grow up hearing that preached. Well, nonetheless, the testimony of Scripture from Genesis Revelation is, ladies and gentlemen, young people, there's something radically wrong with human nature. It is dark, it is evil, it is bent, and it is corrupt. And it is, and, and, and the Bible's message is we are thoroughly infected with wickedness, evil, selfishness, and sin, cut off from God. And if something doesn't change in that, we will not be reconciled to Him. We will die in judgment, and we will face everlasting punishment in hell. That's the message of the Bible. Isaiah 59, just a couple chapters later, says, Your sins have separated you from God. That's the biblical message. That's the backdrop of the gospel. And the result, we've been cut off. This is why Messiah dies. Look at verse 10. The Lord makes His life an offering for sin. This language of substitution just keeps coming up over and over and over again. By the way, notice, notice that phrase. I'm going to drill down here again for a second. Notice the phrase, offering for sin. Some translations say offering for guilt. The Hebrew word they're used in English, A-S-A-M, Assam. If you know your Old Testament, echoes of your Old Testament, you might recognize that. That is a word borrowed from Leviticus 5, speaking of a perfect sacrifice. And it means when Jesus died, He was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people. And that's why someone who is justified before God has been saved from something. What are they saved from? We're not just saved. We're saved from wrath. And we're saved to Christ. We're saved to salvation. 53 verse 12, we have the language of substitution again. Bore the sins of many. So we, why is Messiah killed? Pierced for our trans, he's pierced for our sin, crushed for our sin, God laid on him the iniquity of all of us. God makes his life an offering, a perfect sacrifice for sin, and then he bore the sins of many. The bottom line is you look at Isaiah 53, you have a chapter saturated in the language of sacrifice and substitution. You can't avoid it. That's why, again, it doesn't fit the nation of Israel at all. The context here is of a person, of Messiah, and of Jesus. And it becomes very clear that's what we're doing. Uh, one other verse, verse 7, the language of violence continues, like a lamb led to, not just be killed, to slaughter. And you begin to see why this was so jolting to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people. They had in mind a warrior Messiah. Why? Because they were occupied by a foreign people. Most of us have never experienced that. People in Ukraine right now are experiencing it. You can see the visceral reaction of Ukrainians to a, Roman, to a, to a Russian invasion. The brutality of what's very similar to the situation of Rome and Palestine. You, you, you can imagine the feelings of Palestinians towards Romans. So what kind of Messiah are they looking for? Well, frankly, kind of that you and I'd be looking for. G.I. Joe, Rambo, the Terminator. Somebody that come along and do something. They're not looking for a lamb being led to a slaughter. <laughs> you can begin to see the massive disconnect in expectations. And yet, Isaiah 53 says, that's the Messiah coming. One who will die 
for the sins of his people, not to blow up Rome. John Stott, the great British preacher, summarized, I think, Isaiah 53 well in the whole idea of substitutionary atonement when he said this, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. It was God the Father, it says here, who was pleased to crush his son for the salvation of his people. And that brings us to the last section, chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. The victory of the Savior. This is where the hope just begins to leap off the page. Two things here, and then we're going to land the plane. One, he rose from the dead. Verse 11, he rose from the dead. Let me read. I'm going to establish that he was dead first. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was, notice, what's the phrase? Cut off from the land of the living. Notice verse 9. He was assigned a what? What is he assigned? Verse 9. A grave. We're being told Messiah died. Okay? He's cut off from the land of living. He's assigned a grave with the rich in his death. So there's no doubt Messiah's dead. You get then to verse 10 and 11, and suddenly something changed. By the way, all the verbs up to verse 10 are in the past tense. Suddenly in verse 10, the verbs change and start becoming in the future tense. Why? Because we're going to be told something here about Messiah that He rose from the dead. You say, what? Well, I'll show you. Now, reminder, this is not a popular doctrine. Even in today's world religions, this is not a popular doctrine at all. Everyone from Thomas Jefferson in the Jefferson Bible to Gandhi or to even today's Jehovah's Witnesses, very sincere. Becky and I have dealt with many sincere Jehovah's Witnesses. They will be very upfront and candid with you. They do not believe Jesus was crucified on a cross and that He was risen from the dead. They don't believe that. This is a, this is a very controversial figure, very controversial doctrine. The Quran itself says Jesus is a human prophet, didn't die on a cross, and certainly didn't rise from the dead. In fact, that's considered blasphemous in Islam to say Jesus rose from the dead. Bible paints a very different story and probably what is the quintessential Resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul says. And I want you to notice a phrase in what Paul says here, because it's something we just pass over. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Paul says, Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Now let me ask, let me push on that. According to what Scriptures? Did Paul have a New Testament? No. Did he have a New Testament written in King James English? No. Well, then what? What is according to what scriptures? Paul doesn't say for sure. Paul loved Isaiah. This is exactly the kind of passage he was probably referring to. Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That was code for somewhere in the Hebrew Bible Paul is referencing, even though he doesn't quote it. We know Messiah has died. Where is he coming to life? Look at verse 10. The verbs change to, pre, uh, to future tense. It was the Lord's will, you can translate that word pleasure, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, referencing Leviticus 5, 
he will see his, his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Notice verse 11. After he has suffered, what does it say next? What's the text say? He will see the light of life and be satisfied by, my, by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. One of my Hebrew professors, Marty Volz down here knows me well, was in his church. Gleason Archer, who was not of Adam's race. Let's just be honest. Okay? Guy who does a PhD in classics at Harvard while simultaneously doing a law degree and graduates from both at the same time. That's not of Adam's race. That's a different story. Gleason Archer, I remember going through this passage in the Hebrew text, sitting in his class one day. So he's half classic scholar, half Old Testament scholar, half, I guess that's three halves, I don't know, half, half, half lawyer. He just had this mind that was just razor sharp. He were going through this text, and we get to verse 11, and he's reading it, and I'll never forget, he looked up and he said, gentlemen, we have a resurrection in verse 11 of Messiah. Wow, you're right. That's why this is, a, that's why this is an Easter passage. That's why I wasn't just running short on Easter messages and I picked some weird passage in the Old Testament today. This is the resurrection of Jesus and it is one of the clearest predictions of the resurrection of Jesus anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. That's why I think this had to be in the background of Paul's mind when it says he rose to the dead according to the Scriptures. What kind of Scriptures? Well, you couldn't get any clearer than Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Gentlemen, we have a resurrection in these verses. And then the last thing that happens here, he divides the spoils with the strong, verse 12. This is the language of, of like a military victory parade. You, you, you've seen these kind of things, you know, in like North Korea or Russia or China where you know, these miles-long parade with all the trucks and tanks and missiles and soldiers. And What's the point? We're, triumph, victory, strength. That's the, that's the picture you get from verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. This is the whole point of a, of, of a victory parade. Strength, power, majesty, force, dominion. That's what's going to follow the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, let me land the plane. This gets to the good news of the gospel, and it is this. I'm going to go to, Ma uh, to Mark chapter 1. Jesus came preaching, and it said, here's, here, he said, here's the things you got to do if you want to be in the kingdom of God. You need to repent, and you need to believe. He actually gave three words in Mark 1. For anyone here this morning, if you, have, if you are desperate to be right with God, Jesus gave three words. Repent and believe. That's how you get in the kingdom. Repent. What's that mean? Stop making excuses. Hate your sin. Quit blaming other people. Own up. Stop the blame game and humble yourself and grieve over your sin that, and, and stop. And then to believe is to be all in with Jesus and believe He's the long-awaited Messiah and He died in your place. And then Jesus adds follow. Now, follow means following Him in obedience. The obedience doesn't save you. The obedience naturally arises out of salvation. And the very first command He gives to anybody who has chosen to follow Him is immersion. That's what the word baptizo means in Greek, baptism. Baptism doesn't mean sprinkle. It's a Greek word, and the translation of it is either submerge or immerse. It doesn't save you. It doesn't do anything. It's, a, it, it's commanded because you're going public with Jesus being buried and resurrected, and you're announcing that to the world. He said, that is the very first thing I'm commanding you to do. 
If you haven't done that, then you're in disobedience to Christ if you say you're a follower. That's the very first announce, that's the very first act of obedience. The Bible says that when you believe, when you repent and believe, you're born again, then we're to follow Christ. The obedience shows that we have made that commitment. And what gives gospel hope and courage not to face death is resurrection hope. I'm going to close with my, one of my all-time favorite examples of resurrection hope. It comes from a missionary, Scottish missionary, John Patton, who left Scotland in 1858 at the age of 34 to sail to the New Hebrides Islands off the coast of Australia to a group of cannibals. His predecessor... The previous Scottish missionary, who had done the same exact thing, landed, was perforated on the beach, that's a nice way of saying speared, and eaten by the cannibals, literally. And now John Patton said, I'm next. An older man in the church, Mr. Dixon, took him aside to warn him that this was not a great idea. And he told John Patton, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your life, and you're going to be eaten by cannibals. That's what he told him. You're going to just get eaten by the cannibals. Here is John Patton's reply when he was 34 years old to this older man. Listen to the resurrection hope in this. I love this quote. Quote, Mr. Dixon, I assume he said this in a gentle, kind way, but Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and they're to be eaten by worms. Okay? (laughs) I confess to you, sir, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. My resurrection body on that great day will be as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That is resurrection hope. Whether you're eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms, or your body goes up in flames like on 9-11, if you know Jesus, you will be resurrected. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Those who know Christ eternal life on the new heaven, new earth, those who did not, lake of fire. And the question this morning is, which path are you on? Makes all the difference now and in eternity. Father, we're going to sing. As we do, may we sing for those of us who know Christ is a redeemed people. And for those here this morning who are not saved and still under judgment, would you open blinded eyes and draw them to Christ? And so that they will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved and delivered from judgment. We pray this in Christ's great, mighty name. Amen.